Peter writes, finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you are called so that you may inherit, inherit a blessing for, quote Psalm 34, whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if they should, you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolises baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at, the, at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. This is God's word. Good afternoon. Welcome, uh, everyone. Extend my welcome as well. It's great to see you again. Uh, this is the third talk in a series of three talks that have kind of merged over eight weeks, and we've sort of just come back at them and um, I hope it's been helpful as we're thinking about this topic of following Jesus in a hostile world. And uh, I might just pray for us as we begin um, and ask that the Spirit of God works with the Word of God as we hear and reflect uh, and that we might hear what God has to say to us today. So let me pray. Uh, Lord and Father, we ask now as we reflect upon your Word that your Spirit will be alive and active in our minds and in our hearts, uh, that we may know you and the life that you have called us into. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so this book of 1 Peter was written by Peter, uh, the disciple and the apostle. Uh, it's a letter that he was writing to people who are living in hostile times, um, Christians who are actually being persecuted uh, because of their faith in Jesus. And so far in Peter's letter, uh, he's encouraged us in hostile times, it is important, and really at any time, to live out of our identity that we have received in Jesus. 
We live out of the identity we've received in Jesus. He's encouraged us to live out of our identity as exiles who have been set apart for obedience to Jesus. As children who have a secure eternal inheritance and also collectively as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood uh, with Jesus as our cornerstone. There's image upon image of who we are in Christ. Now, why is Peter giving us so many concrete markers of identity? Well, I take it he wants the truth of the gospel of Jesus to capture our hearts, to focus our minds, so that as individuals, but also as a community, uh, we do not live out of a place of fear. And Peter makes much more of this in chapter 3. It's fair to say that fear is a pretty odd emotion, isn't it? It leads to all sorts of irrational behaviour. We all know of quirky phobias that can make people jump from spiders or run from birds or flee from speaking up front. Uh, I personally um, am afraid of heights. So every year when we go on school trips, outdoor ed trips, Uh, I'm usually forced by the instructor uh, into abseiling, and this is to show the students that there's nothing to fear, uh, which is a ridiculous concept. Uh, Even though I'm completely tied in, and there's an instructor at the front and at the bottom, and there's a bunch of 13-year-old children standing on the cliff, um, I completely freeze up every time. happened this year. We went earlier in the year. Uh, It takes me usually 20 minutes to actually get off the edge and you get very good at nervous talk um, to try and hide your embarrassment. Fear does really odd things to us, doesn't it? It does odd things as well to the expression and growth of our faith. You know, even though Jesus has risen from the dead uh, and God the Father has adopted us into his eternal family, And we are actually on the edge of receiving our eternal inheritance. Uh, We can freeze up and we can live as if none of it is actually true. Of course, freezing up is not the only reaction to fear. Uh, They say more often than not that those who bully others, and that's whether it's in the playground or in the office or in the family are often operating out of a deep sense of fear and instability. Fear can lead us to freeze. It can also lead us to be a bully. Our fear of others' opinions can lead us to say and do all manner of things, putting our energy into how we looked or how we sounded or how we came across. It's possible to walk away from a conversation more worried about what people thought of us than actually the conversation we had. Fear can lead us to say and do things that just are not us. From a public faith perspective, um, I think some can drift into a fear that we're on the edge of losing it all. As Christianity loses uh, its authoritative voice, perhaps its privileged position, I think there are some who fear that the rise of secularism means that we might actually lose Christianity itself. Fear does odd things. Uh, Miroslav Volf made the observation that when Christians operate out of a place of fear, 
we develop an ungospel-like hard edge. He writes, fear for oneself and one's identity creates a hardness. And the difference that joins itself with hardness always presents the other with a choice. Either submit or be rejected. Either become like me or get away from me. In the mission to the world, hard difference operates with open or hidden pressures, manipulations, threats. Uh, I've seen several Christians, and I've probably been one at times in my life, uh, with a real hard edge to them. They carry a very strong sense of us versus them. I wonder whether they often, they don't see the battle as being against the sinful desires that wage war against our soul, as Peter has already written, but rather against other people who aren't necessarily of their tribe. But when it comes to living in a hostile world, Peter provides us with a completely different way. It is not the way of fear, but it is the way of humble confidence, a way that is full of grace and peace. Uh, look at these words he writes to us in verse 8. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. To be sympathetic, to love, to not seek vengeance to show compassion. I think it's near impossible to operate this way if you and I are living out of a place of fear and insecurity. Because from that place, uh, you'll need to win. You have to win. Because otherwise, your world will crumble. You will need to repay evil with evil. You will need to get the last word in and make sure you always win the argument. You'll need to live with a hard edge. Christians sometimes mask this perhaps as passion or zeal, but I wonder whether at some points it's actually just a deep fear and insecurity. It's certainly not the way of Jesus, the one we follow. If there's only one thing to take away from, uh, that we take away from 1 Peter, may it be this, that through Christ the battle has been won. Uh, the inheritance has already been secured. Uh, we have been set apart, we've been brought into the kingdom of the son he loves, and therefore there is actually no fight against those out there. There is only the opportunity in Christ to bless them. My first paid ministry position was in a school. Uh, my boss was, and still is, a great man. He emphasized the role of grace in everything that we do. It was from him that I came to see that a large part of the mission in school chaplaincy is to trace God's grace in every space. This boss of mine was clear and patient, gentle and kind. He had a deep love for Jesus and he knew that without him we are lost in our sin and we are under God's judgment. But he would never let us become self-righteous or preachy. If one of my chapel talks was dialed up too much, uh, into the we're right, you're wrong, self-righteousness, or I spoke about grace in a graceless way, Jeff would often remind me, Craig, this isn't how we do things around here. And I hear this same voice in Peter's first letter. 
Jesus will usher in his eternal kingdom. And it's not dependent on anything we do or don't do. And with that certainty, you and I are now set free to do good to others, which is Peter's reference here in Psalm 34. And we are to do good regardless of how others respond. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good, Peter writes. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats, don't be frightened, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. There it is. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. That word revere is actually the word uh, sanctify. So Peter is writing, in your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord. And what does sanctify mean? It means to set apart. In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. I wonder what comes to mind when you hear that phrase. Uh, Peter is writing about your heart and my heart. I had two thoughts as I reflected upon this statement because I think it's key in this chapter to everything that revolves around it. My first thought was this, that to set apart Christ involves intentionality. Uh, in your hearts, so that's obviously a reference to kind of your center, your operating system, your inner window out of which you view and make sense of the world, set apart Christ as the one who is in charge. Surely that must take some sort of intentionality. It doesn't happen by chance or good luck. Uh, James K.A. Smith would say that the process through which you and I shape our hearts is closely linked with our daily habits. Daily habits of prayer, daily or weekly rhythms of God's word, honesty with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. To set apart Christ involves intentionality. And so there'll be things that we will need to do or I encourage you to keep doing for this to happen. My second thought, though, is to set apart Christ as Lord. It's not just intentionality, but it it's, it's also involves worship, intentional worship. That's that Lord language. Now, the basic concept of worship, from what I can see, sort of involves an exchange. So classic worship works where you give yourself to something fully, uh, with the expectation that we'll receive something in return. We worship things when we give ourselves to them, but we give ourselves to them with an expectation of something in return. Um, and you don't have to worship necessarily a divine being. So some people may worship work with the expectation that it will validate their existence. We give our whole self to it, that success will prove our value. And to be honest, knowing I have genuine value is a pretty big promise return. It's hard to say no to that sort of worship. Or some people may worship self uh, with the expectation that we'll eventually find the person we're looking for inside ourselves. The perfect, honest, free, peaceful self. Finding my idealized self is a pretty big promise return. So it's hard to kind of say no to that. Uh, some people, I don't know, may worship kind of independence with the expectation that always keeping my options open is the pathway to genuine freedom. 
And again, being set free, that is a really big promise reward. And so it's hard not to give yourself to what you think will give you freedom. There are lots of things out there we can worship. As we're living in a hostile world, Peter is clear, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. And I guess what will make this difficult for you and I is if we've already got something there in, in place of Christ. Uh, it is possible that you and I have already sanctified something other than Jesus. Uh, we've set something else apart in our hearts. And it is promising us something big, otherwise we wouldn't set it apart. Freedom, value, selfhood. But if we find ourselves in that place, then the best we can do is we're left admiring Jesus, because he's pretty incredible, but we're not setting him apart as Lord of our life. And Jesus said, others, like seed sowing on rocky places, hear the word, and he says at once they receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Step two in the AA Road to Recovery calls you to make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And if you and I are seeking to follow Jesus in a hostile world and we want to trust and listen to Peter as he writes to us, I think it'll do us well to take our own searching and fearless moral inventory uh, to see whether Jesus is the one we worship or whether something else has captured our hearts. Uh, questions such as, and these are, these are individual questions, these are questions that you would ask just yourself as you're making sense of your own life and your own journey. How do I establish, how do I establish what has genuine value in life? Uh, what voice holds the ultimate authority in my life? What weekly routines are most important to me? Am I actually seeking to be obedient to Jesus or just admire him? There's probably a whole bunch of other questions that could form helpful reflection. But let's come back here to our passage in 1 Peter 3. Uh, I said this question, we've spent a little bit of time on it, is important because you, you notice the call from Peter to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts is the central command around which two realities grow out of. The first one we've looked at, it's the release from fear. Do not fear their threats, don't be frightened. The second one on the other side is the ability to speak freely about God's goodness. Do not fear, speak freely about God's goodness, and in the middle, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. And so Peter writes, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Uh, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now, this is interesting because the word Peter uses here for giving an answer is uh, usually the word that they would use for giving a testimony in a court of law. Uh, some have rightly, I think, considered this part of 1 Peter to be a particular word to those Christians at the time who have been arrested and they're actually now standing before court. 
But I take it that this command from Peter doesn't need to be limited to courtrooms, uh, in the office, uh, at the mum's group, watching uh, your child's sports game, spending time with the grandkids, catching up with friends. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So Peter's word is, when we live in a hostile world, is encouraging us to be ready when we are asked. I think when we think about evangelism or sharing our faith in the current climate, one of our key means of mission is testimony. Now, when I say testimony, I'm not referring to telling your whole life story about how you became a Christian and, you know, 15, 20 minutes worth, although if someone wants to hear that, share it. Uh, But when I say testimony, I'm referring to giving small, bite-sized testimonies that bear witness to your life as a Christian. Uh, Put them out there, be in prayer, and see what God does. I honestly think the first and hardest step in evangelism uh, is just developing the courage with the help of the Spirit to be honest. What did you do on the weekend? Uh, Well, I spent some time with family on Saturday and I went to church on Sunday. Uh, What are you up to tonight? Uh, Well, actually, I've got a dinner and a Bible study tonight. It's hosted by one of the couples I go to church with. Honest, bite-sized, testimonies. You are bearing witness to the Lordship of Jesus and the shape of life that it has invited you into. Uh, if someone asks you more, why, why do you go to church? Or what's a Bible study? Do you actually believe that stuff? Uh, be ready, Peter says, with a way to answer. And most, if not all, of the answers you give in this context will be best if they are honest answers. This is your story. And so there's no guidebook. Someone's asked me why I go to Bible study. Page three read it out. I mean, that's just kind of weird and freaky, isn't it? It's just be honest. If you're part of a community group and you, why do you go to it? You could just share, be open. The best faith conversation that Naomi and I have had with her father and his partner actually came out of questions they asked us over dinner about what we'd been up to that week. And it'd been one of those weeks where, you know, like you've been really busy, but then someone's asked you what you've been up to and you can't think of anything. So, we're sort of just scratching the barrel and going, oh, well, we did this and we did this. And one of the three things we said was, oh, Tuesday night we went to Bible study. That's all we said. But it ended up leading to this great lengthy conversation about what Christian faith is. Uh, And it was a fantastic base off which to have ongoing faith discussions with them. Uh, Very few people are going to ask you to parse the Greek word for righteousness in Romans. But if you can do that, it's fantastic. But most people will ask you whether you actually think Christianity is true or what you mean by Bible study or church. I think it's true that in our current climate, some people um, rightly and also maybe unjustifiably are really angry at Christianity. Um, But I think others as well, perhaps many people, are actually just curious. And if you're asked a question to which you don't know the answer, Just say you don't know the answer. And if they push you on it and say, well, why don't you know the answer? I guess you could say something like, well, it isn't really central to my faith, 
But that's a really good question and I should look into it. Because I imagine if it is something that's really central to the idea of Christ's forgiveness for you, then you might have an answer. But if it's a periphery thing, maybe you don't yet. So just say that. Did you notice here that for Peter, the key is that one, you're ready to share if and when you are asked, and two, you answer with gentleness and respect, and you are able to answer with a clear conscience. I take that means, according to Peter, in hostile times, uh, a clear conscience. That means every moment you live is lived bearing witness to the Lordship of Jesus. And then at some stage, if someone asks, be ready to share with them with gentleness, respect, and a clear conscience. Uh, how, how are we meant to speak of God's grace when you've operated as a bully or a jerk in your workplace? All under the justification that, well, that's how we get things done in this industry. Or how are you meant to bear witness to God's steadfast promises when you're known as the gossip who can't be trusted with important information? Now, according to Peter, every moment of our lives is lived bearing witness to Jesus. Uh, we do trace God's grace in every space. And then at some stage, if, when someone asks, be ready to share with gentleness, respect, and a clear conscience, the way of mission in a hostile world. Miroslav Volf notes that the difference Peter calls us into is actually a soft difference. He writes these words, he says, a decision for soft difference, as opposed to a hard difference, presupposes a fearlessness, which one Peter repeatedly encourages his readers to assume. People who are secure in themselves, or more accurately, secure in their God, are able to live the soft difference without fear. They have no need to either subordinate or damn others, but can allow others space to be themselves. For people who live the soft difference, mission fundamentally takes the form of witness and invitation. And so I wonder what this may look like for you in the space that God has you, the people he has around you, to be a witness for Christ extending invitations, always being ready to give an honest answer. Now, Peter wraps up this chapter, and we're going to wrap up these reflections uh, with an encouragement and a reminder. It's a bit of a weird passage. I was thinking of just cutting it short, but then I thought, oh, that's kind of dodgy, right? When you cut out the confusing bits, it's a trail to somewhere you don't want to go. So uh, it's a pretty odd section in 1 Peter, which he finishes on, but we're going to have a go, and I think it wraps things up nicely. Uh, in a first century world that was haunted by evil spirits and powers, uh, evil powers that may well be at work in the persecution of the church, Peter reminds his readers in a fairly odd-sounding way that Jesus is Lord of all. And therefore, because of that reality, there's nothing to fear. Uh, there's a Noah reference, and there's a comment about Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison. They all seem a bit odd and out of place. The best guess uh, that I've read is that Peter is referring to a strange group of beings that you can read about in Genesis chapter 6 called the Nephilim. Now, according to popular belief in first century Jewish culture, uh, God's watery judgment of the great flood of Genesis 8 did not destroy these strange fallen ones, 
but imprison them for his ultimate judgment. Uh, These, most likely, are the spirits in prison. The first century readers probably would have picked up on it, but you and I don't really know who they are. And Peter is saying that the slain but now risen and triumphant Christ went to these evil beings and proclaimed to them their imminent dethronement and condemnation. It's a super odd reference, but the point of it is made clear in the final sentence, that having risen from the grave, Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is now at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and all powers in the universe in submission to him. I think it can feel like the pressure and power of those who oppose Christian faith is overwhelming. Peter's word to us is this, uh, Jesus still reigns. And because he still reigns, the loving Saviour Jesus, there is nothing to fear. Jesus still sits over all. And so in your hearts, set him apart as Lord. Do not live out of a place of fear. Trust him. Suffer well. And be a blessing to everyone. These are Peter's words to us. Amen.